Underground Productions presents Brass, the audio series. Episode 34, Masks Begin to Fall. The year is 1886, but not one that would be familiar to you. For on this March morning, what was in our world, a quiet field 12 miles from central Paris, infused with the buzz of bees and the smell of irises and peonies, is instead a private airfield with hangars for 30 experimental fixed-wing aircraft. And working steadily on the undercarriage of one of these aircraft, his coat off and sleeves rolled up, is the Liberian-American inventor, Dr. Henry Jones. Ah, Dr. Jones, there you are. Lord Brass. Installing the new batteries, I see. This uh, is the final one. Marvelous. A complicated process? Uh, any capable mechanic should be able to remove a depleted battery from the craft and replace it within 20 minutes at most. Splendid. This is not what concerns me. What does? The new battery hasn't had enough tests. You are overly cautious, Henry. How many flights have we done with these? For distance, eight. For structural endurance, 15. Well, an additional series of a dozen or so would be advisable, but we simply don't have the time. The batteries and all spares must be charged and ready for flight in three days. A conventional etheric battery won't last long enough for either of the legs of the journey. Well, needs must. I can make sure that each craft has at least one extra charge battery, but that's the best I can promise. It shall be enough. Aha! Here comes the architect of our aeronautic fleet, Mr. Grassley. Gentlemen, how goes it, Dr. Jones? Mm, the work's complete. Would it be a fleet? Well then, I can report that 28 of the 30 flivers now have pilots, and all are ready for service. So what shall we call our aerial group, Mr. Grassley? A fleet? A phalanx? I was thinking a squadron. Isn't that a term for cavalry? It is, and like cavalry, our greatest tactical advantage is executing our movements swiftly and in formation. Horses of the air. As if an angel dropped down from the clouds to turn and wind a fiery pegasus and witch the world with noble horsemanship. Yes, sir? Shakespeare suits the martial mood, don't you think? He almost makes you think that war is worth it. What's your favorite bit of the bard, Henry? Ah, your son approaches. Now, which play is that? No, sir. I'm referring to your son. Who is walking towards us? Ah. Who is that rather dashing man that's with him? I am not the detective my dear wife is, but judging from the cassock he's wearing, I'd say he's a Jesuit priest. Hello, my boy. Father, this is Father Reynard. That sounded strange. Bonjour. Bonjour, Lord Brass. I am honored to meet you and see your base of operations. It's surprising what you can do with ingenuity, sweat, and a lot of money, isn't it? Indeed. My brothers are marveling at the design of your flivers. Ah! The two other fellows in the cassocks. Have they experience with aeronautical craft? In fact, they do. Mm -hmm. Both brothers Thomas and Joseph were aeronauts before joining the priesthood and have kept up on developments. Now that's handy, because... As it turns out, we're in need of a couple of pilots. Are they the sort of priests who might be amenable to a crusade? We all are, sir. Capital. Then we shall test the metal of their swords. Mr. Grassley, go and sign those gentlemen up. Yes, sir. Father, the priests are on a mission that dovetails rather nicely with ours. Oh, yes? His Holiness Pope Leo XIII has entrusted us with a message to pass on to the Archbishop of Canterbury 
It is an ecumenical plea to join him in denouncing Lord Trent's government and calling on all Christians of good faith to protest its immoral nature and actions. How wonderful. Any chance you could have it run in the papers in three days? Perhaps. We need to infiltrate Le Tombaroise smuggling operation and hide ourselves in cargo. If we can do it tonight, it would be possible. Father, I'd like to go with Reynard. There's a lot that I can do to get him to the Archbishop, and if we can get this message to the press... I agree. It'd be invaluable. All right, my boy. Look after Reynard. And Reynard, look after my son. I'll see you both in London. Thanks, Peter. Well, we're off to prepare ourselves for smuggling. Give my best to Lord Whitestone when you see him. I like Father Renard. He seems like a sturdy fellow. And a good companion for your son. I hope so. The poor boy has so little in the way of sturdy male companionship. Later that morning, in a London apartment deep in the Jewish neighborhood of Spitalfields, the electrical genius Nikola Tesla sits with his compatriots, the currently reformed criminal Mr. Crawford, the pugilist Dan Abraham, and Gwendolyn Brass, who is leading a discussion. The problem before the table is, how do we take down a government? Dynamite. With minimum loss of life, Mr. Crawford, a stipulation of my father. All due respect, Miss Brass, but you and your family have killed more than a few people including men under my command. We have met violence with violence, this is true. But our plan here is to lead a revolution, not stage a coup. Is there really that much difference? We seek to overthrow the illegal Trent regime, not to rule, but to restore the country to the law of the land and the service of the people. If we fail, no doubt they'll call it a coup. Right then, let's not fail. I've outlined to you the other parts of Father's plan. The question for us is, how do we supplement it? Uh, to create a popular uprising. That would be ideal. Well, there's a large degree of discontent among the people of London, so they'd be open for your message. You could print up handbills and arrange for lectures. A fair idea, but we've days, not weeks, to act. I still say dynamite. How would that help start a popular uprising? People take to the streets when there's an explosion or two. Yes, in terror. That's not at all helpful. We don't want them terrified, we want them to pay attention and listen to our message. Oh, well, you know, such a thing is possible. I'm sorry? Wireless communication, of course. But you need both transmitters and receivers. No, you need only a single transmitter. You could have as many receivers as you wished and broadcast the same signal to all of them at once. When you say signal, do you mean human speech? Absolutely. Is it possible to do all this in 72 hours? It is eminently possible. Yes? Yes, my dear Gwendolyn. However, it is a matter of solving some rather involved technical issues. Such as? The transmitter for the wireless communication is a relatively easy matter, both of design and construction. Principally, what we need is a tall metal structure, like a steeple or a bridge, that we can supply with a strong electrical current. But the other units, the speaker receivers, are a problem. Difficult to design? Oh, not designing them. The receiving unit is simple enough, and I had a conversation several months ago with my roommate, Professor Lodge, regarding what he described as dynamic speakers. I believe these would be effective. Indeed, I have already envisioned the proper schematics to assemble a portable receiver-speaker unit. There is, however, the problem of manufacture, which would involve gathering some fairly exotic materials, copper and gold wire, magnets, zinc sheets, lead sulfide, carbon filament, and then transporting these to a facility or factory that could oversee subsequent manufacture. 
And how many of these units are we talking here? To ensure proper transmission through the entirety of Greater London, I would imagine in the vicinity of 150. Oi, that's past the inventory of my Uncle Benny. Nicola, I don't see where we can get all these materials in 24 hours. I do. From the storehouses of the Crime Minister. Really? Indeed. My friends, the Crime Minister runs an empire, but I was the man who administered it. And I know which warehouse stores what, and I know the schedules from when there's shipments between one and other. You're suggesting that we steal the materials we need from the Crime Minister? Us, and a few rogues I can analyze. You think you can find thieves desperate enough to steal from him? I'm good enough to pull it off. The Crime Minister hasn't gotten to where he has without making enemies in the criminal classes as well. Yourself being a good example. That's right. And I know several others who never would take to his ways. All right, then. What's the soonest you can arrange this? Tonight. That's step one. Step two is finding a factory for production. Hypothetically, if we have the necessary materials and enough machinists, their manufacture is not particularly complicated and could be fairly rapid. All right. I believe my mother can help with that. I'll send her a wire. Then, once assembled... Their practical placement is a challenge. We will need to find a manner of distributing numerous receivers about the city in a discreet fashion so that the message can be heard. The unit will be somewhat bulky and therefore hard to transport. How bulky? Let us call it two stone in weight and approximately the size of a large Gladstone bag. And we have to station 150 of them throughout all of London? Old clothes. Sorry? I've got the answer. Old clothes. What does that mean? I'll talk to my Uncle Jacob. Is he a fighter? A clothes peddler. And this is helpful? There are easily 500 Jewish clothes peddlers in London, each with their own cart, and they all know my Uncle Jacob. Talk to your uncle. While you are all engaged, I'll begin work on the prototype and drawing up the schematics. Well, it seems we each have a task to perform. I could use a bit of help with mine this evening, if you don't mind, Miss Brass. I'd be delighted. Shall I come along as well? It's bound to be a bit dangerous. I can take care of myself. That you certainly can, Dan. But I was hoping I could have your escort this afternoon. I've an idea about discovering the whereabouts of Ponder, now that we know he's alive. I believe my schedule is free. Right then. Let's get started. Follow me, Dan. Oh, I love coming up with a good disguise or two. Back in Paris several hours later, Lord Brass is overseeing a new project at one of the factories of Dr. Henry Jones. Benjamin? Abbott, one moment. Run the cord through here and give it a six-second fuse. Fusible de six seconds. Oui. Merci. Now, my friend, what is it? The Heidelberg agent has news. So quickly. German efficiency. In this case, fortuitous circumstance. Our agent there has had his own reasons for being interested in von Hoffmann since the good professor left Heidelberg three years ago. Who is our agent there? Trossler. Dagobert Trossler? Yes. Keen mind, that one. What was his interest? As we know, von Hoffmann came to prominence as a professor of statistical and physical mathematics and physics at Heidelberg University. Three years ago, just prior to his departure to the Sorbonne, the professor went on a sailing trip with several of his academic colleagues on the Danube. There was an accident and the vessel capsized. 
and only von Hoffmann managed to swim to shore. I believe I'd heard something about this. His survival was the only bit of good news from the tragedy. Indeed. But Trostler has a different view. You see, he had known one of the drowned men, been something of a school chum, and through him he had met von Hoffmann once or twice. His friend had told him that the man had no living family and no friends outside of his fellow professors, so he assumed he'd been dealing with his grief privately. But on the day before he was to depart Heidelberg to pay his respects, he went to see him. And was he grieving? Oh, very much. Black armband, sorrowful visage and all. He thanked Trostler for his sympathies and extolled the virtues of the lost mutual friend. It was a brief meeting, and Trostler was out again in the street within ten minutes. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. He couldn't shake the thought that the man he met was not the man he'd spoken to on previous occasions. What? He said it was an excellent impersonation, but he was quite sure this man was two inches taller. And what's more, he was quite sure that the von Hoffmann he met had light blue and not gray eyes. Well, these are small distinctions. Uh Trostler's good with such distinctions. It's how he makes his living. That's right. He's a detective. <laughs> they do make such good spies. In the last three years, he's followed the career of von Hoffmann from triumph to more triumph, until finally, just a year ago, he was selected to be the new Minister of Science for the government. After the last minister died in the Channel Tunnel flooding. Which was claimed to be an accident. And perhaps wasn't. The conclusion is clear. Professor von Hoffmann died three years ago. And the man who bears his name is an imposter. And your arch nemesis. But look here. Three years ago? That makes no sense. Why not? Von Hoffmann published his first work on physics while still a young man and had a brilliant and distinguished career in Heidelberg. But in the three years since he left, he has continued to write, publish, and lecture on a variety of scientific matters. In academic circles, people speak of his more recent works as the second golden age of a great mind. So, this man who most likely murdered and is currently impersonating a scientific genius... Is himself a scientific genius. These are dark, dark matters. Positively infernal. But at the center of it is a man. And one whose sheer audacity in his crimes means that he is no doubt prone to the habitual failing of all great men. Hubris. Well... I look forward to being the nemesis that knocks him off his perch. Covert papal operations? Squadrons of flivers? A plan to broadcast a message over the whole of London using the wireless innovations of Nikola Tesla? What is going on here? And how does it all play into the still quite obscure strategy of Lord Brass? Find out more about these and other pressing issues when we next join the adventures of the first family of the realm, Brass. Brass is manufactured by Battleground Productions and features Kate Cray as Lady Brass, Charles Leggett as Lord Brass, Catherine Grant Sutty as Gwendolyn Brass, and Jeremy Adams as Cyril Brass, with Larry Albert, Dennis Bateman, Margie Bickman, Lisa Carswell, Amy Decker, Nancy Fry, Ronnie Hill, Philip Keeman, John Longenbaugh, Matt Middleton, Terry Edward Moore, Tad Morgan, 
Pam Nolte, and Nikki Vissel. Brass was recorded at Jack Straw Studios, engineered by Joel Maddox, with sound design by Kirsty Gilmore, and music composed by Bruce Monroe. It was written and directed by John Longenbaugh. For more information on Brass, go to battlegroundproductions.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and to support us, fund us on Patreon, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.